Would you take your Bible this morning as we turn to God's Word? I'm going to just take a brief break here in the Gospel of John, maybe this week and next week as it's summer, and look with you at some things that have just been percolating in my heart on Isaiah chapter 6. Would you, as you take that Bible, stand in the honor and the reading of God's Word? Let me read for you at least Isaiah chapter 6. And I'd like to read verses 1 through 7 as you follow along. It might be a familiar text to you, but my aim this morning is to exposit through it. 6-1 of Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim, Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Father, as we come into your presence, as we get a glimpse into your holiness, would you open our hearts to the truth? Would the Spirit of the living God speak to each of us through this live word? It was written centuries ago, but Father, it's as though it's read this day, fresh to us. Give us a view, give us a vision of God Give us a vision of your character, of your person, Father, that we might know you and walk with you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Men and women throughout the centuries have struggled with the concept of God's holiness. I'm thinking specifically at the beginning here of a man who pastored the largest church ever convened in the world, ever. That particular man suffered a heartbreaking setback. And it was a heartbreaking setback for this man who pastored the largest church in the world because of just one sin, just one sin. Of course, his name was Moses. He was leading at least the nation of Israel at that time. Well, over three million people, we believe. He was the shepherd of Israel. He is the one who had an audience with Pharaoh. He led Israel, of course, out of Egypt. And beyond all of that, even greater, he spoke face to face with God. He was the receiver of the Ten Commandments. He is the author of the first five books of the Bible. 
However, in one moment of anger, rather than speaking to the rock as God had instructed him, he, you remember, struck the rock in disobedience and forfeited his privilege to enter into the promised land, Numbers chapter 20. This man, Moses, who was so greatly used by God, was denied by God the greatest desire of his heart by not being able to enter into the promised land. You say, well, why? I mean, is it just one sin? I don't think we have to even inquire as to the reason why is because it's stated in Deuteronomy 32:51. God said to him, you broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. In other words, Moses is a great man, but he broke faith with God because he did not treat me, God said, as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. Just one sin, and you remember God took him to the top of that mountain and let him see the promised land without entering in the promised land. I mean, certainly those words in the 21st century, probably in the minds of some of you, seem harsh, seem unyielding. For just one sin, God said Moses broke faith with, faith with me, he didn't treat me as holy. Maybe some of you have asked the question, why did God banish Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden and the entire human race fell, you would say, for just one sin. For just one sin in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira lost their lives. And maybe, in the minds of some, certainly people have asked that question, it was just one sin. This guy named Uzzah. Uzzah. The ark was falling off the crate, off the, the platform that they were carrying it on. And he touched the ark of God as it was falling off the crate in which it was being carried, being pulled by some oxen, if you will. And he was killed on the spot for just one sin. Beloved, I would just say to you that sin is a serious offense to a holy God. Or possibly, we have such a low view of God that we make light of this. God's holiness is at the core of all that God is in His person. Do you remember He said early on in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.2, he exhorted you, and we'll talk about this in a moment, to be holy. And then he went on to say, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And when Isaiah was in the temple that day, and he saw the vision of the Lord, 
And the seraphim were crying out in antiphonal praise, calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. What does that mean? What does it mean that God is holy? I would submit to you that humanly it's, it's probably impossible to articulate from a true understanding of who God is. Not that I can't tell it to you, not that I don't know what the Hebrew word means, but I don't think I could do justice to it in my finiteness and in my humanness. But in Hebrew, that word for holy, it means, if you're taking notes, to cut. This is what the word means, to cut. You you could even say that the word in Hebrew means to, to separate. So to cut or to separate, and sometimes we may even use the word to set something apart. Or if we set of something, it's a cut apart. Or a cut above something. Now that word holy describes the character of God, and it's used in reference to persons, we might say. It's used in reference to things, and I'll come back to God's character, that have been separated from the ordinary. They've been set apart from the ordinary, and they've been placed in peculiar relation to God and His service. So a very foundational understanding of that word holy is to to be a cut above, to be separate, to be set apart from the earthly, to be set apart from the mundane, to be set apart from the everyday, and then positively to be set aside for His service. Let me just give you just a few examples, and then we'll come back to the character of God. Do you remember when Moses was in the very presence of God in Exodus chapter 3? He was before God, and God spoke to him from the bush. And certainly you remember in Exodus 3, as Moses stepped up to that bush, in other words, it was a vision of God. He said, take off your sandals, for you are standing on what? Holy ground. In other words, there's ground in this earth, and I looked at a lot of it on the Grand Canyon. But there is holy ground. In other words, this ground was set aside for God, for His purpose, and it was set aside because of all the dimensions of the land and land mass. God's presence was there. Moses, take your sandals off. You are standing on a holy ground. And then, of course, if you go even in Exodus, that was chapter 3, Exodus 16, they had Sabbaths. Of course, each Friday at sunset to Saturday at sunset is set aside for the Sabbath. It is that day amongst most of the nation of Israel, even though it is a very secular nation. They close everything down on the Sabbath. But in Exodus 16.23, there was something called a holy Sabbath. In other words, you have Sabbaths that were practiced, but Israel practiced a holy Sabbath. Out of all the Sabbaths, this one is set aside. This one is unique. As you continue that picture in Exodus 19, we have reference made to nations. But Israel, amongst all the nations, 
as it says in the book of 1 Peter, that they were a holy nation. In other words, there's nations, but Israel as a nation was a holy nation. They were set aside from the common and dedicated to God. When you go into the temple, they had holy water, you understand. They had holy censers. When the priest went into the Holy, on on the Day of Atonement, do you remember he went back only once a year and the high priest went into the holy of what? Holies. In other words, there's a temple. There was a courtyard. There's a women's courtyard. There's a courtyard for the Gentiles. Then there's a courtyard rising up. Only the Jews could come. Then only the high priest could go into the temple. And only one time a year could he go into the temple and go behind the veil and go into the holy of holies. So holy things, beloved, are set apart and consecrated to his service. And it is this concept of separateness that holiness is maybe has a beginning to be understood. But of course, God's holiness is something so far beyond that. God's holiness is infinitely greater than ours. Though we're called to be holy, God's holiness is so transcendent above ours. In other words, it's other, if you will. Sometimes theologians talk about the difference between God's transcendence, that he's other, if you will, holy other, and his imminence, that he's near. I think today, and certainly appropriately so, we talk a lot about his nearness to us. Praise God for that nearness. We can abide with him. He lives within us through the Holy Spirit. But there is something in the scripture when we speak of his transcendent, when we speak here of his transcendent holiness, it is so far above ours. His holiness, God's holiness, exceeds all comparisons. He is utterly, if you will, majestic. He is totally set apart. He is, beloved, you know this, in a league all by himself. And because he's holy, he's to be worshipped. And certainly, one of the clearest expressions of God's holiness is found here in Isaiah chapter 6 in his vision of God. Now, let me just build a little background with you as we discuss the greatness of God or even here, the holiness of God. What's, what's fascinating about Isaiah, as I turn you to that book, we read from it, Uh, There's many people who believe that of all the prophets, it's human accreditation, that Isaiah may be the greatest of all the prophets. He prophesied, what's interesting about Isaiah, the prophet, is did you know that he prophesied with over a period of time of four different kings? Makes him interesting. You think, well, was he just prophesying for a few years? The answer is no. He prophesied the reign of four different kings at a time of Israel's history when they had abandoned God and they had turned to false gods. In fact, one of those kings was Uzziah, one of the four. What's interesting of Uzziah, we don't have completely the time here, But he turned, he did some good things. He turned 
Jerusalem. And remember, as I speak here and as you come here, the northern tribe has already been taken away by Assyria. They, they fell. Only what's left is the southern tribe. And Uzziah, not Uzzah, who touched the ark, was one of those kings. He turned Jerusalem into a strong city in some ways. He and they enjoyed peace to a relative degree. They enjoyed prosperity. What you need to know about Uzziah, maybe as we walk into this text, is he ascended the throne at 16. That would be like a 10th grader at Emmanuel High School, if you're in 10th grade. Be like a 10th grader, maybe a 9th grader. He comes and he ascends the throne here at 16. And he reigned, you say, how long did Uzziah reign for? 52 years. And there was some good. It's sad if you want to read it on your own. 2 Chronicles 26, at the end, he ended in I don't know, a, sh- a shamble and a shame. So, so utterly difficult. Sad in many ways. So sad because he went into the temple and he tried to perform only what the priest did at the end of his reign. And for that, God gave him leprosy. And he died a leper as his life closed. But as you read Isaiah 1 through 5, I won't take the time. He is denouncing Judea. He is denouncing Jerusalem. They are wicked, the nation. They are deceitful. They developed wrong practices of weighing things. They lived in a drunken stupor. It's not far from today. They live taking, if you will, their, their hearing and understanding from people of the East, which is not far from today, people who seek astrological signs. They lived in utter corruption, utter debauchery, if you will, and you can read that on your own in 1 through 5. They were a nation of bloodshed. Their nation was under distress. Uzziah started well, but finished hard. He'd been there 52 years, and now he is, look at 6-1, in the year that King Uzziah died. He's dead. And I would even submit to you that what terrified Israel, not only did they lose a reigning king for 52 years that did much good, actually. Israel was terrified by a guy by the name of Tiglath-Pileser III. He was the king of Assyria. And as Isaiah came into the temple that day, Tiglath-Pileser was mounting his troops, setting out to conquer all the kingdoms between the Euphrates, and the Nile River. And they not only lost their king, but now they are being tremendously threatened and on the verge of extinction to be wiped out. And it's with that in mind, look at 6.1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, 
saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah here, as a prophet, encounters God's holiness in a vision while he's in the temple. So he's, he saw the Lord. We believe he's there in that temple because the vision is in the temple. And we don't really know what was the occasion why he went into the temple that day. He's a prophet, obviously not wrong for a prophet to enter, but I have a reason to think so. I'm wondering if it's the year of uh, Uzziah's leprosy. I'm wondering if he went in the temple and they caught, caught up and maybe it was the day of. Maybe he's going back and thinking Uzziah stood here and he took the, the tongs out and he offered what he shouldn't have done. He began to take on priestly privilege, which he was not a priest, he's a king. And I'm wondering if that day in this vision, if it was that very time that he finds himself in the temple. And what our Lord does here is direct Isaiah and even us to the true king. And he gives Isaiah and he gives us a revelation of himself. And Isaiah chapter 6 provides a series of truths that help us recognize the holiness of God. What is this? We'll get to that in verse 3 when the seraphim cry out. This is the holiness of God. What is it? Well, let me enumerate a few things to you. Number one, holiness is a recognition of his person. When you think of the person of God, it is a recognition of who he is in his being. Obviously, we call the holiness of God one of his attributes. And at least according to R.C. Sproul, it is the preeminent feature of all of his character. What is it? It's the ideal of grandeur. Holiness is the grandeur of God. It is the greatness of God. It is the dignity of God, if you will. It is His sovereign lordship over the earth. When you think of the holiness of God, it refers to His status. It refers to His position. It refers to His person. That He is utterly transcendent and exalted and above all of us in a way that no one else is. Now look at the text as we draw our eyes to it. In the year that King Uzziah died, this next phrase, I saw the Lord. Stop there just for a moment. He's in a vision. And in that year that he died, he gives him this vision. And in this vision, Isaiah describes it this way, that I saw the Lord. Now, you know that there's different names in the Bible for God. It says there that I saw the Lord. And it's the Hebrew reference for for Adonai. Adonai. Which, according to many Hebrew theologians and rabbis, it is the supreme title for God. It is the supreme title, let me get more specifically, specific with you, for his sovereignty. 
He has different names we understand. I saw the Lord. I saw, Isaiah says, Adonai. And so what a, what a wonderful thought. I do draw your eyes down to verse 3, though. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And you'll note there's a difference there. There's a distinction there. Obviously, they're both names for God. But you'll look and notice in verse 3, holy is the Lord, and it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, all caps, if you will. That is the name for Yahweh. So sacred was that name that the Jews didn't even want to speak of it. So we had to put vowel points in the Hebrew Scripture to know and designate this name as such. They only gave the consonants, but not the vowels, if you will. So in verse 3, it's the Lord of hosts, but look back again at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and it's not all capitals, and I just mentioned it's not all capitals because it's the word for Adonai, Adonai. It is, Adonai, the most exalted title given to God in the Old Testament. It is the supreme title for God. It is the title of His sovereignty. And so here, as you walk into 6-1, in the year that Israel loses their human king, Isaiah sees the real king, if you will, the sovereign Lord in all of His glory. In other words, though everything is unraveling in the nation, and everything will unravel and come undone in his own personal life, God reigns. And it might be enough today just alone for worship that he's reigning today, isn't he? That in the midst of the crisis of our nation, when we do not understand what's a male and what's a female, and when we abort baby after baby through abortion, as wicked as that is, I just want us to know, and as we face an election year, God reigns. In fact, I would submit to you that the greatest thing in your life, in the midst of your deepest trial, is an understanding of the character of God. The fact that in the year that their human king dies, God and Isaiah sees Adonai. And he sees him in all of his glory. He sees the real king, the sovereign Lord, in the fullness of his glory. Now look what the text says in Isaiah 6.1. He saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. God is actively residing. He is even at this moment of this writing when it may be unraveling in the nation and it may be unraveling in your personal life. He's actively residing. He's sitting upon the throne. He is supremely reigning. He is the sovereign king, and he is so today. But not only is he sitting on the throne, look again at verse 1. He's high, and he's lifted up. I think the NASB says that he's lofty, he's exalted. And so as Isaiah, as he comes into the temple that day, you can picture this throne. 
But it's not any throne. It's high. It's lifted up. It's exalted. It is towering. It is elevated. It is over heaven and earth. In other words, God is holy other. He's infinitely exalted above us. God is without limitation. He's without equal. In fact, this is the testimony of the Scripture, Isaiah 57, 15. When it speaks of God, it says that He's high and the lofty one. The high and the lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. In other words, beloved, listen, as we come to church today, you understand a personal relationship with the living God who's high and exalted, whose very name, Isaiah 57, 15, is holy. Isn't it interesting when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, and the very first standard or stanza off that wonderful prayer is, hallowed be thy what? Name. Holy be thy name. And so his person here is so unique that no one can be compared with him. In fact, it says in Isaiah 40, verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. In other words, you can't get far past the name of God and the description that he is the Holy One. Do you remember in the Old Testament, Moses in Exodus 15, 11, exclaimed this, Who is like thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness? And so here, this first principle is a recognition of his person as absolutely distinct from all his creatures. He's exalted above them. He's an infinite, found an infinite majesty. It says in the book of Revelation 15, 4, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. He's holy. I think, beloved, at least in our culture, hopefully not in this building, we have so trivialized God that we refer to him as our buddy, <laughs> that we refer to him as the man of upstairs, that we've lost all sense of otherness, if I could use that word, all sense of transcendence that makes him majestic. It says in the book of Psalms in 99, the Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He is enthroned, it says, above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. And then it tells us in Psalm 99 to exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool, holy is he. So when you think about the holiness of God, it is a recognition of his person. And so here, as he's under the inspiration of the Spirit, don't panic, Isaiah. Don't panic, Grace Church of the Valley. God is on his throne. He's residing. He's in control. 
And, and we, even though Uzziah dies, Congress or whatever country you're in is going to have to appoint someone. He says, even beyond any other human king, God is reigning. But you'll note, not only did he see him on the throne high and lifted up, but look again at the end of verse 1. The train of his robe filled the temple. Uh, We use the word train of the robe. Sometimes in the Hebrew, it's the hem, if you will, of the the garment. But it is a a train, not a choo-choo train, we understand. But the train of a garment, obviously, beloved, was a sign of royalty. And in these days, the loftiness of a king was measured at times by the length of his garments. But this is no ordinary garment. I mean, even today, when a bride enters the the church, there is a train to the wedding dress. But imagine, if you will, being at a wedding where the train is so long that it begins to fill up the auditorium. That as God is seated on his throne, as he's high and lifted up, exalted, the train of his robe, it says in verse 1, is filling the temple. It keeps coming and coming and coming. And you have to evacuate the auditorium. This is a vision of the greatness of God. But beloved, God in his person is so majestic. His presence, if you will, fills the temple. He's high and exalted. His train is just overcoming all that is there. But not only did Isaiah see the Lord, look at verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim, or seraphim, you could say, Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Obviously, in this vision of God, he not only sees the the person of God described in his character, but here there's angels, seraphim, plural, multiple in number. I don't know if it has any a semblance here, but the word seraphim in Hebrew means fiery. But these angels have been dedicated, if you will, to attend to God's person in his holiness. They attend to the holiness of God. And you'll notice we just read they have six wings. Six. So here is this picture of this seraphim, and they have six wings, and they're suitable for a specific purpose. I think we understand that. Fish, the way God created them, have gills. Fish have scales. Fish have fins for their environment. Birds have wings suitable to fly. They have feathers. They have light bone structures. And likewise, the seraphim are skillfully designed by God. And these seraphim are given, if you will, special features to be in the presence of God and to give Him glory without being, if you will, utterly and totally consumed. 
So here's these seraphim, and it's plural, like Elohim describes God. Seraphim is plural. Here, there's angels present. And they have these wings. And look at the text there in verse 2. With two, he covered his face, is what it says. Because they hover, if you will, over the throne of God. These seraphim are exposed to the full glory of God. And even though they're angels, no creature can behold the sight of God's full effulgence of his glory and live. And these seraphim, if you will, minister before the unveiled glory of God. Yet his glory is so piercing, this is what it means, that they have to shield their face from the brightness of his glory. It would be, beloved, understatement, like standing right in the face of the sun. But God's holiness is even brighter than that. It's utterly blinding. His holiness is beyond the sun. The scripture tells us that you are in a relationship with God who lives in what the scripture calls unapproachable light. The Bible tells us that no one has ever seen his full glory. Do you remember when Moses was put into the cleft of the rock in Exodus 33, 20? God said to him, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and what? Live. These creatures are before God, before Adonai, if you will. But so great is his brilliance that they have to cover his face. And I do say, beloved, I find it somewhat fascinating that though these creatures are sinless, they still cover themselves in the presence of God. So with two, they cover their face. Look at the text again. And with two, two what? Two wings, obviously. He covered his feet. What does that mean? He's covering his face we get it. Maybe the face is the eyes. They cannot, though they're above the throne, ministering to God, not above the character of God, but they're hovering, if you will, and they cover their face, and now they cover their feet. I believe it's best to understand feet as symbols of your creatureliness, if you will. In other words, we have feet. We are from the dust, and here though their holy angels are still creatures and they cover their feet in the presence of God. And in my mind, it goes back to what God said to Moses, take off your sandals, you're standing on what? Holy ground. In other words, God's so holy that with two wings, they cover their face. With two wings, these seraphim cover their feet. Look thirdly there in verse two. And with two wings... He flew. Now you have to understand these creatures hover. When I was in the Grand Canyon last week, 187 miles down whitewater rafting like that, we started at a place called Lee's Ferry. We got off at 187 miles later. We slept right on the 
the Colorado River next to it, not on it, okay? wasn't a miracle there, but right next to it. But when we got out of there, we took a helicopter. It's really fun. It's a joy, just four of us at a time. And what does the helicopter do? It doesn't need a runway. It just comes down on the ground and lands, and you get in that thing and start praying again, and it just goes up, 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 and the Grand Canyon is massive. You just keep going up, up, and it cuts to the side, and it climbs. Okay, these, these guys, these holy angels, they got wings, and they fly. A helicopter is an is a, is a implementation of man. But can you imagine these? They've got these wings, and with two he flew, because angels always... Obey the will of God instantly, except for one who was cast out of heaven itself, Lucifer. But not these. They're holy angels. They're covering their face. They're covering their feet. And here in this picture of Isaiah, they are flying. And so they recognize not only his person, but the striking aspect is not what the angels look like. It's their message that is even greater. And we'll see you next week, okay? I'll pick this up. We're out of time.